the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we're going to hear from John Zmirak, who was a fan of the president's speech. We'll find out what he had to say. By the way, he's a senior editor of The Stream. He's also the author or co-author or editor, for that matter, of about 12 books, including the new Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism. He's uh, also the editor of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute's Guide to Higher Education, Choosing the Right College, and collegeguide.org. Uh, for about 10 years, also editor of Disorientation, How to Go to College Without Losing Your Mind. It's actually a pretty good volume that I would uh, recommend. Well, the State of the Union address took place last night, and I have to admit, I didn't listen to it in real time. I ended up reading most of it, although I listened along um, as well. They can get somewhat tedious, and my understanding is this was the third longest um, uh, in U.S. history. They seem to have gotten longer and longer. In terms of substance and the State of the Union, there's less and less of that in it. It tends to be something more of a political treatise, but nonetheless, this is the what the Constitution calls for. Back in the day, they just uh, submitted a written uh, report to Congress. Then, of course, with the advent of radio and television, it became something else, and now it's um, a, an opportunity for political parties and individuals who aspire to higher office or to make a point to do so in front of the cameras. So uh, sometimes I like to listen to it without watching. I prefer to read it without hearing, and then you can kind of get the unadulterated version of it. But I do want to play some excerpts of the president's State of the Union address, his second, and uh, some have suggested his opening salvo to the 2020 presidential election. You can judge that for yourself. He began by making the setting the tone that he was um, going to emphasize unity. We, at one point, he said he was hoping that we will govern not as two parties, but as one nation. This was incredibly optimistic if you look back over the last uh, couple of years. So I suppose based on that line of loan, you could probably argue that he's a man of faith if he thinks he can pull that off, because it would require a significant mount, amount of it given where uh, Congress stands against the president, or at least uh, the Democrats in the Congress against the president at this point. Uh, He made the point that he wanted to create an immigration system that's safe, lawful, modern, secure, and to pursue a foreign policy that put Americans' interests first, that victory is not winning for one party, uh, for our party, victory is winning for our country. And that, of course, is always a a line that everybody agrees with, how you get there is another matter. Then the president went on to talk about um, an amazing quality of life for all citizens here in the U.S. Amazing quality of life for all of our citizens is within reach. We can make our community safer, our family stronger, our culture richer, our faith deeper, and our middle class bigger and more prosperous than ever before. (laughs) 
Everybody agrees on that point. How you get there, here's what he had to say. But we must reject the politics of revenge, resistance, and retribution, and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation, compromise, and the common good. Together, we can break decades of political stalemate. We can bridge old divisions, heal old wounds, build new coalitions, forge new solutions, and unlock the extraordinary promise of America's future. The decision is ours to make. We must choose between greatness or gridlock, results or resistance, Vision or vengeance, incredible progress or pointless destruction. Tonight, I ask you to choose greatness. Mm. The president went on to tout some of his accomplishments, saying that in two years since the election, we've launched an unprecedented economic boom. We passed a massive tax cut, a massive rather tax cut for the working families and doubled the child tax credit. We've unleashed a revolution in American energy, pointing out that the United States is now the number one producer of oil and natural gas in the world. And for the first time in 65 years, we are a net exporter of energy. The president said that members of Congress... The state of the union is strong. Our country is vibrant and our economy is thriving like never before. The president said an economic miracle is taking place in the United States. And the only thing that can stop it uh, are foolish wars, politics or ridiculous partisan investigations. Now, in the uh, in the course of a state of the union address, one could would not have expected that he would not make mention of the ongoing Mueller investigation, having for two years heard accusations being brought, but not a final uh, report. So I suppose it's not um, not surprising. The president went on to say in the last Congress, both parties came together to pass unprecedented legislation to confront the opioid crisis. Inspired by the stories like Alice's, one of the guests he had in the gallery, he said his administration worked closely with members of both parties to sign the First Step Act. Uh, into law. That legislation reformed sentencing laws that have wrongly and disproportionately harmed the African-American community. So he made reference to the things that they have agreed upon. And then he went on to say this about both Republicans and Democrats. Now, Republicans and Democrats must join forces again to confront an urgent national crisis. Congress has 10 days left to pass a bill that will fund our government, protect our homeland, and secure our very dangerous southern border. Now, we'll continue that in just a few moments. I'm really close to the uh, the break, so uh, we'll hold that over for just a moment. But we're listening to brief excerpts of the president's State of the Union address delivered last night before a packed House in both of both the House and the Senate. And, of course, with guests, each of whom reflected some point that one individual or party or executive wanted to make about the future of the country. We'll continue with that in just a few moments. Also talked with John Zmirak, his impression of the president's address. He was, by the way, a, a, a fan. And we're going to hear in the five o'clock hour from Johnny Erickson Tata. Her latest book is a re-release, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the State of the Union address. It's delivered every year, and the president uh, uh, offered his State of the Union last night, his second of his administration. I know Maxine Waters suggested that people just not listen at all, but I think regardless of whether you agree with or disagree with the president, whoever occupies the Oval Office, it's important to listen to what he or she has to say. Uh, So anyway, we're just playing some brief excerpts of what the president had to say. Now, I started one before the break, ran out of time, so we'll start that again. The president was talking about what uh, Republicans and Democrats have to do in order to move forward. Now, Republicans and Democrats must join forces again to confront an urgent national crisis. Congress has 10 days left to pass a bill that will fund our government, protect our homeland, and secure our very dangerous southern border. Now is the time for Congress to show the world that America is committed to ending illegal immigration and putting the ruthless coyotes, cartels, drug dealers, and human traffickers out of business. speak, large, organized caravans are on the march to the United States. We have just heard that Mexican cities, in order to remove the illegal immigrants from their communities, are getting trucks and buses to bring them up to our country in areas where there is little border protection. I have ordered another 3,750 troops to our southern border to prepare for this tremendous onslaught. This is a moral issue. The lawless state of our southern border is a threat to the safety, security, and financial well-being of all America. We have a moral duty to create an immigration system that protects the lives and jobs of our citizens. This includes our obligation to the millions of immigrants living here today who followed the rules and respected our laws. Legal immigrants enrich our nation and strengthen our society in countless ways. I want people to come into our country in the largest numbers ever, but they have to come in legally. Tonight, I am asking you to defend 
our very dangerous southern border out of love and devotion to our fellow citizens and to our country. No issue better illustrates the divide between America's working class and America's political class than illegal immigration. Wealthy politicians and donors push for open borders while living their lives behind walls and gates and guards. Meanwhile, working-class Americans are left to pay the price for mass illegal immigration, reduced jobs, lower wages, overburdened schools, hospitals that are so crowded you can't get in, increased crime, and a depleted social safety net. Tolerance for illegal immigration is not compassionate it is actually very cruel. Well, as you could hear, there was quite a bit of applause. But as you can imagine, that applause came from one side of the political aisle and not both sides. A rather interesting argument. We've been hearing that the wall is immoral. The president now making reference to border security as uh, is being motivated by love and devotion. So it's interesting to hear the language that members of Congress and the executive are using to try to paint their version of border security as the one that's in the best interest of the American people. The president went on to say that in the last two years, our brave ICE uh, officials made 266,000 arrests of criminal aliens, including those charged or convicted of nearly 100,000 assaults, 30,000 sex crimes, 4,000 killings. He said, we're joined tonight by one of those law enforcement heroes, ICE Special Agent Elvin Hernandez. And then he asked Mr. Hernandez to stand. He went on to talk about his administration and that Congress is uh, trying to establish some Uh, or he would like Congress to establish some common-sense proposals to end the crisis on the southern border. The administration has sent to Congress a common-sense proposal to end the crisis on the southern border. It includes humanitarian assistance, more law enforcement, drug detection at our ports, closing loopholes that enable child smuggling, and plans for a new physical barrier or wall to secure the vast areas between our ports of entry. In the past, most of the people in this room voted for a wall, but the proper wall never got built. I will get it built. Well, we'll see whether or not that... Uh, actually happens either by an act of Congress or if the president declares an emergency. The president went on to say that no one has benefited more from our thriving economy than women and the women who, many of whom were dressed in white, stood and applauded for themselves. He went on to say that making it clear to China that after years of targeting our industries and steel, uh, stealing our intellectual property, the theft of American jobs and wealth has come to an end. Another historic trade, the president said, blunder was the catastrophic um, uh, d- agreement known as NAFTA. And of course, he's brought forward a new version of that. He's asking 
uh, Congress to support. He said, I'm also asking you to pass the United States Reciprocal Trade Act. The next major priority for me, he says, and for all of us, should be to lower the costs of health care and prescription drugs. He said, I'm asking Congress to pass legislation that finally takes on the problem of global freeloading and delivers fairness and price transparency for American patients. And said that tonight, I'm also asking you to join me in another fight that all Americans can get behind the fight against childhood cancer. And of course, one of his guests uh, was a child with cancer. Finally, the president said this. So proud to be the first president to include in my budget a plan for nationwide paid family leave so that every new parent has the chance to bond with their newborn child. There could be no greater contrast to the beautiful image of a mother holding her infant child than the chilling displays our nation saw in recent days. Lawmakers in New York cheered with delight upon the passage of legislation that would allow a baby to be ripped from the mother's womb moments from birth. These are living, feeling, beautiful babies who will never get the chance to share their love and their dreams with the world. And then we had the case of the governor of Virginia, where he stated he would execute a baby after birth to defend the dignity of every person. I am asking Congress to pass legislation to prohibit the late term abortion of children who can feel pain in the mother's womb. Well, these are some of the excerpts of the president's speech. He also said that we're getting uh, other nations to pay their fair share, referring to uh, NATO and other agreements that we continue our historic push for peace in the Korean Peninsula. The United States officially recognized the legitimate government of Venezuela and other statements as well. And of course, um, making the declaration that the United States is doing quite well. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've been talking about some of the president's State of the Union address. During that time, he made reference to the Korean Peninsula. We later learned that he'll be meeting in Vietnam with the Korean dictator, Kim Jong-un. He's also made reference to the government in Venezuela, the Middle East, Afghanistan, uh, and the uh, the fact that the United States um, has a dis- left the disastrous Iran nuclear deal. And last fall, we put in place the toughest sanctions ever imposed on a country, referring to Iran as well. And then this is how the president ended his remarks last night at the State of the Union. When American soldiers set out beneath the dark skies over the English Channel in the early hours of D-Day, 1944, They were just young men of 18 and 19 hurtling on fragile landing craft toward the most momentous battle in the history of war. They did not know if they would survive the hour. They did not know if they would grow old. But they knew that America had to prevail. Their cause was this nation and generations yet unborn. Why did they do it? They did it for America. They did it for us. 
Everything that has come since our triumph over communism, our giant leaps of science and discovery, our unrivaled progress towards equality and justice, all of it is possible thanks to the blood and tears and courage and vision of the Americans who came before. Think of this capital. Think of this very chamber where lawmakers before you voted to end slavery, to build the railroads and the highways and defeat fascism, to secure civil rights and to face down evil empires. Here tonight, we have legislators from across this magnificent republic. You have come from the rocky shores of Maine and the volcanic peaks of Hawaii, from the snowy woods of Wisconsin and the red deserts of Arizona, from the green farms of Kentucky and the golden beaches of California. Together, we represent the most extraordinary nation in all of history. What will we do with this moment? How will we be remembered? I ask the men and women of this Congress, look at the opportunities before us. Our most thrilling achievements are still ahead. Our most exciting journeys still await. Our biggest victories are still to come. We have not yet begun to dream. We must choose whether we are defined by our differences or whether we dare to transcend them. We must choose whether we squander our great inheritance or whether we proudly declare that we are Americans. We do the incredible. We defy the impossible. We conquer the unknown. This is the time to reignite the American imagination. This is the time to search for the tallest summit and set our sights on the brightest star. This is the time to rekindle the bonds of love and loyalty and memory that link us together as citizens, as neighbors, as patriots. This is our future, our fate, and our choice to make. I am asking you to choose greatness. And that's essentially how the president ended the speech, sort of on a lofty tone. Now, some would suggest that he doesn't have the credibility to uh, ask of members of Congress such great things. And that's a part of the crux of the uh, controversy that's going on there. But the president offered his State of the Union address. There was a rebuttal that followed immediately. And um, I hope you took the opportunity to listen in and to consider where we stand as a republic and where we should head to next, because these days ahead are going to be very contentious for reasons I don't need to. Uh, Uh, I don't need to review. 
among the comments made by the president, what was missing in the State of the Union, and perhaps this wasn't the place to bring it up, was America's $1 trillion deficit um, or the $22 trillion in counting national debt or the entitlement programs that will continue adding to them. I suppose the State of the Union, although by its very uh, title, suggests that these are the kinds of things that you'd want to um, want to mention, was absent from the speech. That's fairly typical in these kinds of lofty addresses. CBS News and CNN released their instant poll. It was taken immediately after the president's State of the Union address with both uh, polls finding 76 percent of those who watched approved of the speech. CBS poll, um, 72 percent approved of the immigration proposals, while CNN, uh, their polls showed 76 percent approved with 59 percent very positive. There was an update later uh, in the evening. CBS pride, uh, provided approval by a party. Uh, Republicans, 97 percent. Democrats, 30 percent. Independents, 82 percent, which is significant. Independents uh, sort of rule the day at this point. Uh, Democrats, of course, uh, were um, not in favor of the president's speech, but 82 percent of independents. And again, this is a CBS um, uh, poll taken immediately following the speech. Pro-Trump uh, CNN commentator Steve Kortz uh, posted CNN's results of 76 percent approval, 59 percent very positive. Peggy Noonan, who's a former speechwriter for President Reagan and no fan of the president, praised his speech tonight, saying this has been a deeply adept speech in terms of policy. He cut to the muscle on legal and illegal immigration, on abortion and infanticide, on foreign wars. His vow on socialism will be remembered not only by what he said, but by who responded in what way great heroes in the balcony a real american panoply uh, and good-natured with the white jackets uh, who i see some on twitter are calling the straight jackets aoc had a rare bad night i think she was referring to ocasio cortez uh, looking not uh, spirited warm and original as usual but sullen teenaged and at a loss well she later sprung back to life and commented on the uh, on the president's speech. Well, taking a look at some of the developing news uh, for the uh, the day, uh, let's start here. Um, president Trump announced uh, last night during the State of the Union address that he and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will meet later this month in Vietnam. The president said he and Kim would meet on February 27th and 28th. If I had not been elected president of the United States, we would now uh, right now, in my opinion, be in a major war with North Korea, he added. The president didn't share the specific city where the summit will be held, but sources say that it would likely be in Da Nang. And uncertainty continues to reign in Virginia as its embattled Democratic governor, Ralph Northam, refuses to resign over racist photos. On his 1984 medical yearbook page, Virginia, uh, Virginia Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax braces for a possible legal action from a woman who was has accused him of sexual assault. And then the attorney general admitted that he, too, during his um, time in, in the 80s, uh, donned blackface makeup as well. So it's not altogether clear what's going to happen in Fairfax uh, or rather in uh, Virginia. 45 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with John Zmirak. He's a senior editor of The Stream. He was quite favorable to the uh, president's speech. We'll give him an opportunity to weigh in on what he thought he, the president got right. We'll also hear from Johnny Erickson Tata. She re-released her book, Heaven. From a more mature standpoint and having been in that chair for 50 plus years, she writes 
uh, a bit different, uh, differently than she did in the original version. She'll join us in the uh, five o'clock hour as well. Well, the one trillion dollar deficits are on the horizon, but that uh, was conspicuously um, omitted from the State of the Union. The deficit is not a sexy issue and it's not something that's likely to get solved quickly. And of course, talking about something in the State of the Union address is not the same as actually doing something. Still, the talking does matter. Tax reform for the win. On Tuesday, ExxonMobil announced it would invest a whopping $10 billion in America's infrastructure as it develops the Golden Pass Liquefied Natural Gas, or LNG, facility in Sabine Pass. According to ExxonMobil, construction will begin in the first quarter of 2019, and the facility is expected to start up in 2024. The U.S. government is preparing to begin construction on more border walls and fencing in South Texas, Grand Valley, likely on federally owned land set aside as wildlife refuge property, according to the Associated Press. Congress last March approved more than $600 million for 33 miles of new barriers in the Rio Grande Valley. While the president and top Democrats remain in a standoff over his demand for $5.7 billion in border wall funding, U.S. Customs and Border Protection has pushed ahead with building what's already funded. And a uh, boring, low-stress Supreme Court term just got substantially more interesting. National Review's David French writes that within two short days, we may learn a great deal about Justice Kavanaugh's approach to abortion rights and about the willingness of the court to roll back recent abortion-friendly jurisprudence. Pope Francis acknowledged for the first time on Tuesday that priests and bishops have sexually abused nuns and several of those clergy have been suspended. Some clergy have abused nuns to the point of sexual slavery, the Pope said, adding that the church is addressing the problem and for some time we've been working on it. Now that came as something of a shock to many observers. Uh, New Jersey will be the second state to mandate that middle and high school students learn about LGBTQ contributions. Democratic Governor Phil Murphy signed Senate Bill 1569, which requires schools to adopt curriculum that accurately portrays political, economic and social contributions of persons with disabilities and lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people. I'm not sure how you find out who those people may have been since that wasn't a leading issue in uh, most great achievements. On this day in 2014, Jay Leno says goodbye to NBC's The Tonight Show for the second time, making way for Jimmy Fallon uh, to take over as host. And on this day in 1993, Tennis Hall of Famer and human rights activist Arthur Ashe dies in New York at age 49 from AIDS-related pneumonia. And on this day in 1911, Ronald Wilson Reagan, the 40th president of the United States, is born in Tampico, Illinois. Now, I've already covered some of this. I I don't know where we'll start here. Uh, as I mentioned, the uh, boring, low-stress Supreme Court term just got substantially more interesting. Here's what happened. Last fall, a three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit unexpectedly upheld Louisiana's so-called admitting privileges law. The state requires that doctors performing abortions have active admitting privileges at a hospital that's located not further than 30 miles from the location at which the abortion is performed or induced and that provides obstetrical and gynecological health care services. Unexpectedly, because abortion rights advocates believe that the Louisiana law was clearly invalid under Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstad, a 5-3 uh, to three 2016 decision where Justice Kennedy joined with the court's four progressive justices. The decision came after Justice Scalia's death to strike down a Texas statute that also requires abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at hospitals located within 30 miles of the clinic. 
the abortion clinic. The majority ruled that the admitting privileges requirement imposed an undue burden on a woman's right to choose. Now, her Safety and health were not a consideration, apparently. Under the facts of the case, the court found that the law placed a substantial obstacle in front of women seeking an abortion while finding no significant health-related problem for the new law to cure. Louisiana argued that its facts were substantially different from whole women's health, and while the Fifth Circuit panel agreed, noting, for example, that the Texas law would have forced all but eight out of 40 abortion clinics to close, yet only one Louisiana abortion doctor was unable to obtain admission privileges, the smart money was betting that the Fifth Circuit would grant en blanc uh, review and strike down the Louisiana law. Well, that didn't happen. On the 18th of last month, the Fifth Circuit denied en blanc uh, review. And on Friday, the 25th of January, a single Fifth Circuit judge denied the plaintiff's request for a stay of enforcement pending their effort to seek Supreme Court review, declaring that the law would go into effect in seven days, which was the 1st of February. And with that, We're off to the legal races. The plaintiffs, an abortion clinic and two doctors, filed with Supreme Court an application for an emergency stay to block enforcement of the law. The state responded, and on Friday, Justice Alito wrote a brief order granting the stay through this Thursday. Uh, which is, of course, tomorrow. The order gave no hint of the court's ultimate ruling. It granted the stay merely because the filing uh, regarding the application for a stay in this matter were not completed until earlier today, and the justices needed time to review the facts. So we'll see what happens, but it could be rather uh, interesting uh, looking forward. Now, coming up the next hour, we're going to talk with John Zmirak. He is the senior editor of The Stream, and he's written a column on the president's speech. He thought it was semantically brilliant. We'll find out what he says about what the president uh, did right, what he may have gotten wrong or what he left out. So he'll join us uh, after the top of the hour news and traffic. Then we'll also hear from Johnny Erickson Tata. It's a conversation I had with her about a week ago or a couple of weeks or re-release of the book Heaven. You might have remembered it from I think it was the mid 90s. It might have even been the mid 80s. Um, your real home from a higher perspective. In it, she makes the point in this revised and updated version that reflects a more mature perspective from a woman who is currently battling um, stage three uh, cancer for the second time. Uh, her perspective and her motivation has changed dramatically. It's an inspiring conversation. I hope you'll take the opportunity to listen in on. She'll join us in the second segment of um, the five o'clock hour. We're also going to talk about the uh, the visit of Pope Francis uh, to the United Arab Emirates and the impact that's likely to have on uh, Christians throughout the region, but evangelical Christians in particular, and uh, how this rather um, historic event managed to take place, the the agreement that was signed on to by uh, the Pope and uh, some imams in the United Arab Emirates and what this may or may not spark and, and what it may or may not mean. So we'll get into that uh, in the next hour um, as well. All right. I'm going to wrap this hour up, Clark. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We've got news and uh, traffic coming up at the top of the hour. And again, we'll talk with John Zmirak, senior editor of The Stream, author and or co-author or editor of some 12 books. Um, he'll be joining us in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is John Zmerak. He's a senior editor at The Stream. He's the author and co-author or editor of 12 books, including the new Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism. He was editor of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute Guide to Higher Education, Choosing the Right College, and collegeguide.org for about 10 years. And he's also editor of Disorientation, How to Go to College Without Losing Your Mind. He joins us today to talk about his recent column in which he writes, Trump channeled Reagan in the State of the Union address and said that the address was rhetorically brilliant. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Georgine. Good to be on. Yeah, I was very impressed by the speech. I felt like Trump made a bold but wise decision. Instead of getting down into the muck with the resistance, with the people who are making false charges against not just him, but all his voters, that they're racist and xenophobes and hateful, he decided instead to point to the common values we we share as Americans and the common policies that every patriotic American ought to be pursuing. And, And he reached out to the American people over the heads of the media censors and social, social media deplatformers and the professors and the pundits who have been painting a, a hideous caricature of President Trump and of all his supporters. Now, how well do you think that resonated with his detractors who were in the room as opposed to the 70, what, 79 percent who viewed the president's speech favorably? I think most of the Democrats came across looking kind of petty especially the, 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 those women dressed up as evil nurses, <laughs> the, 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 the Democrat congresswomen who, who dressed up in those white outfits and wouldn't even stand, wouldn't even applaud at the best economic numbers for minority Americans in our lifetime, uh, the best wages for the working class in the last 30 years. Um, I mean, they, would, they didn't even stand for the ICE agent who freed 300 Latina women from sex slavery and and human traffickers. Well, he certainly did make it difficult for his detractors to look good if you're just listening to what the president is saying in the response uh, that they gave. Now, they would argue that based on what the president has said and done in the past, they stood their ground in opposition to him. But to listen to the speech, it did make them look bad. In fact, I thought it was interesting that the, the women dressed in white were far more enthusiastic about themselves than they were about some of the things you just mentioned. And they certainly failed to stand when it came to uh, supporting the notion that infanticide was not acceptable in the United States and that socialism was never going to rule here. No, but he very cleverly trolled them into standing up and applauding themselves. And they were jumping around like, like giddy sorority girls just to applaud their own election to office. And then on crucial issues important to the American people, including women, uh, they sat down like sullen little brats. I, I think that, w- that picture was worth a thousand words. Now, you obviously were in favor of the president's speech. Were there things you thought he left out or should have said differently in the course of his, uh, what, third largest, uh, third longest State of the Union address thus far? Um, there are things I would have liked to hear, but I'm not sure that strategically it would have been good to do that. Um, I, I would like to know that he is going, if necessary, to go around Congress to build a wall using the emergency declaration and presidential powers. I would like to hear that, but I don't think last night was the time for that. Last night was the time for him to lay out a positive agenda and ask the American people to get on board and ask them to demand their legislators get on board with getting our borders under control reigning in the chaos, rape, theft, and kidnapping that pervade our southern border, 
um, continue our economic boom, continue a strong foreign policy that still believes in negotiation and wants to get us out of long-standing wars and conflicts that both the Democrats and the Republicans have lively just allowed to go to drag on for decades from Afghanistan to Korea. Now, the president early on made the point that this was going to be a unifying message, and many on the left laughed at the notion that that was even possible, given uh, what the president has said and done, particularly in criticism of many of them by name and by caricature. How do you think the president did in terms of a unifying message, not just in the halls of Congress, which is a pretty tall order, but uh, for the nation as a whole? Well, by pointing to our, our sacrifice and victory in World War II, our destruction of, of the Nazis, our defeat of the, of the, of the Soviet Empire, our, our strong fight against Islamic terrorism, he laid out things that ought to unify us as Americans. And if the Democrats are unwilling to get on board with preserving and, and strengthening and making, again, making America great again, the country that achieved all those things. And instead, they, they insist on painting America as if it were some nightmarish hellhole, the way Stacey Abrams, the losing candidate for governor, did in, in her really kind of sad response to his speech. If the Democrats aren't willing to get on board with that, then they, they reveal as the obstructionist they really are. Now, it was interesting that you made the point that uh, the victim of the Holocaust and the American soldier who rescued him were featured in light of some of the members in, uh, in that room who have been noted as anti-Semitic. Uh, it was a strategic move that I think was somewhat um, unexpected and perhaps little understood by viewers. What are, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I think you're right. I think I'm, I'm glad the president did not get down into, into divisive rhetoric, but, it, but people should know that we've elected two Muslim members of Congress, both of whom have made viciously anti-Israeli statements that, that verge over into anti-Semitism. One of them, the one from Minnesota, has said that Israel has the world hypnotized. I mean, that sounds like Nazi propaganda. It sounds like she's distributing the protocols of the elders of Zion out of her legislative office. I would not be surprised if she were. Um, I think the president wanted to stay positive, and he wanted to, to in a sense, go around the media walls uh, that every network but Fox put up that portray him falsely as some sort of extremist and portray all his voters as out-of-touch, hate-ridden, resentful losers. I mean, it, it, the viciousness that the left has towards Trump's supporters, the members of his family, and we have to say towards unborn children, ought to give us a pause. Uh, the Democrats have morphed into an extremist party. They're big, but that doesn't mean they aren't extreme. Remember, in the 1920s and 30s, Germany's two biggest parties were extremist parties, the Nazis and the communists. Just because there are a lot of people who say something, that doesn't mean it's in tune with the Constitution or the values of the country. Two of the things the president didn't make reference to was the government shutdown. We've got about, uh, well, now nine days uh, before that government shutdown kicks in again. He also didn't mention the wall. I'm certain that was a strategic calculation. Your thoughts on how well that was played, given the controversy that could reemerge in the next few days? Um, I think he did mention the necessity of a wall. Um, I'm glad he didn't talk about the shutdown. Most Americans don't care. Unless you happen to be a federal employee, you wouldn't even notice the shutdown. That shows you how little the government's actually doing for us, that it, most, most of it can shut down, and life just goes on as if we didn't even need this enormous leviathan. 
Um, I think the president is going to probably need to go around Congress and use his presidential power and the military budget to build a wall, and he's going to need to defy court decisions. He's going to need to tell the Ninth Circuit to, to go stuff it and keep on building it. And if the Democrats don't like it, they can impeach him. But guess what? They're going to impeach him anyway over nothing. So it might as the impeachment that's going to happen that the Democrats have promised might as well be over whether or not America has borders to the country or not. Well, we uh, will certainly watch what happens next. I appreciate so much your taking the time to talk with Thank us. Thank you. Thank you, John Zmirak. Again, Zmirak is the senior editor for The Stream. He's also the author, co-author, or editor of 12 books, including The Politically Incorrect Guide to Catholicism, which is a relatively new volume in that series. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, our final segment. Well, despite the fact that Grand Canyon University, a Christian university, had announced that it was not going to host Ben Shapiro, the conservative commentator, they're now announcing on their webpage through a release that it has extended an invitation to the conservative commentator to speak on its campus sometime this spring. Now, this is a rather abrupt about face, but this is what they had to say about the decision. The university felt the need to explain the timeline of events that led to this decision due to misleading and false information that has been made public by the Young America's Foundation National Organization, which sought to bring Mr. Shapiro to campus. And again, this is in the words of Grand Canyon University from its webpage and its announcement. The GCU chapter of the Young America's Foundation did an outstanding job of working with its national office to produce a conservative speaker series at GCU during this academic year. Each time, the local chapter followed the university's existing approval protocols and conservative speakers were brought to campus, including Ali Stuckey in November of 2018, Michael Knowles in October of 2018. In this latest case involving Mr. Shapiro, the same protocol was in place. However, when the YAF chapter submitted its guest speaker request in writing in December, YAF's national organization announced publicly on the same day that Mr. Shapiro would be speaking at GCU, even though the university had not yet begun its approval process. The university set up a meeting with its local chapter uh, leadership in order to discuss their intent and, not, um, and did not halt the process as a result of its approval in order to discuss their intent, uh, the protocol um, uh, not uh, not having been followed in the right order. The students presented their intent to a committee of students, faculty and staff. The committee considered the request and made a recommendation to deny the request. That recommendation was uh, brought to GCU President Brian Muller. And a number of students on campus expressed their concern that this speaker would bring a feeling of divisiveness to the campus based on some of his previous speaking appearances. The GCU YAF chapter was unhappy about the denial and the university agreed to meet with their leadership and the spokesman of the organization's national organization to review the decision on Monday. The meeting appeared to be productive and the university agreed to bring Mr. Shapiro to campus this spring. The process of releasing the information became very contentious as the party could not agree on the exact language that was going to be used. After nearly 24 hours of not being able to work in a productive fashion with the YAF National Organization, the university has decided to take a different path forward. The university is extending an official invitation directly to Mr. Shapiro and his organization in conjunction with the GCU YAF chapter student uh, to organize an event where he would... um, 
come to campus and present uh, to interested students. It is important to note how this situation is different than most of the previous situations that have been high profile in our country. Grand Canyon University is an openly avowed conservative institution, which is expressed through its doctrinal statement, ethical positions, curriculum, weekly chapel, and other events held on its campus on a daily basis. Conservative talk goes on at GCU's campuses every day, all day. Bringing conservative speakers helps students on its campus crystallize what they believe in and stand for. However, the university also welcomes students on its campus who do not share conservative Christian views. They are free to express their worldview in and out of the classroom in the spirit of open discussion. In this case, the issue was not the conservative views, because the majority of GCU students in the university share many of the views that Mr. Shapiro espouses, including the system of values expressed through the Judeo-Christian principles and the free market economy. It is our intent to honor the desire of the YAF GCU chapter to have Mr. Shapiro on campus so that he can share his views. This conservative dialogue will continue on campus whether Mr. Shapiro decides to accept the invitation or not. Now, this is sort of a peculiar response given the reason they had given for denying uh, the invitation to Mr. Shapiro. But this is what uh, this is how they've chosen to respond now in saying that essentially they have reversed themselves and Mr. Shapiro will be invited to campus. I have no doubt that he will uh, accept that invitation and will be speaking there at some point in the not too distant future. So a reversal, a lot of criticism uh, from evangelical quarters all across the country. So I suspect that played a role in that uh, decision reversal as well. You can go to their website, by the way, if you're interested in the full explanation uh, that they've given there. It's about three pages long. Well, this week, Pope Francis became the first Catholic pontiff to ever visit the Arabian Peninsula, the heart of Islam, where conversion to Christianity is illegal. He lauded his uh, hosts in the United Arab Emirates, saying they strive to be a model of coexistence. Well, the Gulf Nation's crown prince received him with a 21-gun salute. Francis then Um, railed against the miserable crudeness of war. Human rights groups pressed him to address migrant worker issues. Francis rejoiced in a diversity that the Holy Spirit loves and wants to harmonize evermore in order to make a symphony. Uh, The mere existence of a Christian community to visit in the Gulf states may surprise many. According to Christianity Today in 2015, they visited the Emirates and reported on its thriving church, populated by more than a million Christians, primarily economic migrants from Asia, Uh, nations such as Indonesia and the Philippines. The Pew Research Center counts them as 13% of the population. They worship in over 40 churches served by more than 700 Christian ministries. And in a region where the Vatican cited a decline of Christian uh, Christians rather from 20% to 4% in the Middle East population in the last 100 years, the Emirati government provided a day off and 1,000 buses to bring Catholics to mass there. Well, attendance reached about 135,000, billed as the largest Christian gathering ever held in the Arabian Peninsula. If the Pope does enjoy sparking controversy, he succeeded also among local evangelical leaders. The Mass was amazing, says one, Jim Burgess, pastor of Fellowship Church and member of the Gulf Churches Fellowship, where he represents independent churches among the region's senior ecumenical clergy. I never believed I would witness anything like this in the UAE. Obviously, the Pope visit, the Pope's visit rather raises respect for Catholics, but when Protestants, even evangelicals, link arms with Catholics and say, we follow Jesus, I believe it helps all Christians here. 
But not everyone agrees. We are grateful for any religious openness in a Muslim society, cited one evangelical leader who represented anonym, who requested rather anonymity. At the same time, we do not regard the papal mass as true Christian worship because the official Roman Catholic Church teaches a different gospel. One Christian commentator found possible evidence of this in France's interfaith work at the largest mosque in Abu Dhabi. He signed the Declaration on Human Fraternity. You can look it up to see what you think about this uh, document. Joining Ahmed El Tayeb, Grand Imam of Egypt's Al-Azir, and uh, the head of an international council of Muslim elders. Afterwards, the crown prince broke ground on a new church and new mosque built side by side in Dubai and named in honor of the signatories. Well, the pluralism and the diversity of religions are willed by God in his wisdom through which he created human beings, it said. And we're talking about the... um, uh, declaration of human fraternity. The phrase parallels a concept found in the Quran in which God intended a multiplicity of world faiths. Uh, yet even here, there was dissonance for the section continues. Therefore, the fact that people are forced to adhere to a certain religion must be rejected. End quote. Well, Pope Francis intended his visit to serve Christian minorities in the Muslim world, but also buttress freedom in general. Francis said, as part of such freedom, I would like to emphasize religious freedom. It is not limited only to freedom of worship, but sees in the other a child of my own humanity, whom God leaves free and whom, therefore, no human institution can coerce, not even in God's name. Well, the conference afforded uh, Bishop Ephraim Tindero, Secretary General of the World Evangelical Alliance, to endorse the importance importance of dialogue and peace building, and that's dialogue, not necessarily the declaration of human fraternity. At earlier points in history, Christians have sometimes taken harder stances toward people who abandon the Christian faith, he told the gathering, but we have come to realize that forced religious belief is no belief at all. We'll see what comes of it. I think there are some serious questions about the declaration on human fraternity, but a rather interesting development in this small Um, country in the desert. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk with Jason Thompson. He's the executive director of Portland Fellowship. And then on Friday, we'll lighten things up just a bit. Want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.